during that challenging part, there has to be adversity. There has to be confusion. There has to be a period of resilience and then breaking through that resilience and breaking, being persistent. And that becomes learning. And I can remember when I was learning algebra in eighth grade, going home to my mom and saying, I don't understand why there are letters with numbers in these equations. And my mom saying, I don't even know what algebra is. And just literally every night trying to figure out what the hell the letters were. On this week's episode of The One Hour Intern, I learned from CEO of SoFi, former COO of Twitter, ex-Army Ranger, and ex-CFO of the NFL, Anthony Nodo. Anthony dives into the influence of his sports coaches, not realizing he was in a lower-class family until the high school lunchroom, and how his mom's hard work to achieve success shaped his values. Let's start with some context about you. You run a major finance company valued at over $4 billion that's completely online, working with student loan refinancing, mortgages, investment, and insurance. You're also a father of five. Can you talk about a day in your shoes, kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. I'd say that the typical day for me is, you know, working in San Francisco, not traveling. I get up between 5 and 5.30. I'm on the road probably by 6.30 and our offices in San Francisco. I Normally, we'll either drive or take an Uber if I have a ton of work to get done. A typical day is really spent kind of reviewing where the business is, getting updates on key initiatives, and really working with the team to reduce any blockers that may be in their way to help make sure that we have accountability of what we're committed to doing as a team. There's definitely some unexpected things that happen every day. could be tied to interest rates, could be tied to partner deals, could be based on performance or overall business. And and having to work through those issues and making sure that we have the right people on them and they have the right direction of what we're trying to accomplish. I try to get out of work anywhere between 6 and 6.30, get home for dinner around 7.30. We have a pretty uh, scattered schedule in our family with children with all different activities. Could be rehearsals for plays, could be football practice, a basketball game or lacrosse game or lacrosse practice. And so I want to make sure every night I find some time to grab with each one of the kids that are home catch up on their day and make sure that we're, you know, we have some connectivity and then normally get to sit down with Kristen and spend a half hour to an hour each night, just, you know, catching up on things and enjoying time together. Could be playing pool, could be watching a show or just talking about what's going on with the family. And you said that in, a, in your work, crazy things happen every day. How do you deal with the curveballs that the office throws at you? Yeah, I think the most important thing as an executive is to make sure that we have a very sound mission, strategy, articulated priorities, and then plans against those priorities and measurable outcomes, which we call objective and key results, OKRs. And so everything's about bringing it back to that. Like what happened? Why did it happen? And what are the implications? And the implications are always tied back to how our performance compares to what we were trying to do, what the implications are, the outcome is. And then do we get? how do we get back on plan? How do we get back to what I'd call home, which essentially means how do we get back to the center line to where we want to be so that we're on the trajectory we're supposed to be to get to the outcome? You know, in ranger school, you learn how to do land navigation at night when you can't see and you're using land features. And if for whatever reason you have the wrong azimuth when you start, you want to figure that out when you're about two meters off of your starting point as opposed to 200 meters or 2,000 because that distance only makes the correction harder and harder to do. So we want to make sure we have real-time information about the state of our business and all the key indicators and and are adjusting as fast as we can. Would you say that you use that same system in your family life as well when things go off? Why are you kind of move back towards home into the values? Yeah, I mean, we, 
you know, as a family, you know, our children all have different goals and aspirations and at different moments in their life, they're doing well relative to those objectives and, and, and also not doing well. And so I always try to go back to like three core ideals with them. You know, one is work as hard as you can. The second is do the right thing. And the third is take care of other people. And so, you know, you want to set up goals, you want to set objectives, but you can't get so uh, caught up in achieving them that you miss the broader point of life, which I think comes down to those three things, many others, but those are three sort of core ideas. And as a parent, how do you inspire those values in their kids and make sure that they move back to those values? You know, I think one is just leading by example and doing it as a parent and as an individual and, and also teaching them and educating them, not necessarily by always talking about them, but looking at specific things that happen and pointing out where there are deltas relative to those expectations. Athletics is a great example of, you know, where there may have been a game or a practice. I've often coached the kids throughout the last, you know, 30 years. And, you know, if their effort wasn't there, making sure that we're in the car on the way home, explaining to them, you know, that it's really critical to make sure every time you step on that field, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing your team and your teammates are depending on you and you owe it to them out of mutual respect to deliver. And that means giving the best effort that you can. And if they're not, I'd point that out. Similarly, if they're not doing as well as they had hoped they would do, you know, I'd go back to, well, what have you done to prepare? What have you done to make sure that you've left no stone unturned in trying to accomplish those objectives? And then there are instances where, you know, how they treat each other, how they treat others, where you want to make sure when they're off, you know, off asthma, so to speak, pointing out that that's just not the way, you know, they would like to be treated and and make sure that they look in the mirror and, and see the you know, the reality of the situation. When they face really hard times and they are following these three values that you give to them and they have put every stone unturned to kind of get the best results, what do you, what do you tell them then? It's a time when you give them a hug and a kiss. I mean, they're all very ambitious and they have all different interests. And what if they put it on the line and do everything that they possibly could do to get there and it doesn't happen, then you have to reward them for that because that's what they can control. The outcome isn't always what they can control. You know, we have two, one that's out of college, one that's in college, one in high school and, and two in and junior high. And, you know, I see the younger three going through what the older children have. And it's a constant reminder to say, you know what, what's going to be is going to be. If you do these three things, we can live with the outcome. And there's no reason to be ashamed and there's no reason to be disappointed if you do those three things. This may be personal and you may not want to answer this because it's your family, but do you have any specific stories with regards to this where you've kind of had to really guide your kids along the way? Oh, they've all had specific examples where they're not playing as much as they would like in a sport or they don't win an award or get elected captain or they just don't have the outcome that they hope to have, whether it be, you know, performance in school or, or other things. And, you know, just, yeah, I mean, there are instances where they haven't lived up to what they should have. and they normally know that and they're disappointed in themselves and they come and ask for advice on what they could do differently and, and maybe how we can help them. But there are definitely examples where they've done everything they possibly could and they just weren't good enough. But I think both of those things build resiliency and grit. And that's what's most important to Kristen and I and, and their children is teaching them how to deal with the, the challenges of life where they get knocked down you know, nine times but get up 10. Could you talk about how your kids and your family kind of play a role in your development now and what you learn from them? I learn from them every day. They are all very unique and I love them all equally. And I don't think I can ever really express how much I, I love them and admire them. They're all smart in different and unique ways. Our, our daughter, Avery, is the first actor in the family. She's the first person to 
you know, be in a, you know, well-produced production. They had a school play last week, Spamalot, and she had a lead role as Lady of the Lake. And, you know, she went out for the play and we really didn't know how hard she'd been practicing and preparing for it. And she told us she had a callback for this lead role and, and we knew it was a musical. And I actually asked her, you know, have you ever sang? Because, you know, you've never been in the choir, you've never been in the glee club. And she said, yeah, I've been practicing. And so I asked her to to sing a song and I got tears in my eyes and choked up because I was just so amazed with what she had accomplished on her own behind closed doors and all of her sisters and brothers and and we as parents have all been very athletic. And, you know, this is the first example of one of them going a completely different direction, but pursuing a passion and just crushing it by preparing so hard and the play was phenomenal. So it's a good example of you teach them these core values and principles, but ultimately they're going to go the direction they're going to go. And hopefully they take them with them regardless of what the path is. Focusing on just your whole day in kind of big picture sense, how do you stay organized with being a parent and running a multi-billion dollar company? First, have a great a great partner. Kristen is, you know, we've been married for almost 30 years. We've known each other since we were 11 years old. We know a lot about each other, but the, I think the thing that's allowed us to be successful as parents is that we complement each other in a lot of different ways. And we're a great, you know, team in in raising the kids and also managing our not, you know, our outside interests professionally or or not not professionally. And so that that's a huge help. And it's really making sure that we have a good handle on what the kids on their have on their plate, not overloading them, not overloading ourselves and and really just managing it as a as a team and making sure that we're prioritizing the right things and we can make this stuff happen in, in a way that makes sense for the for the family and for us. Now that we kind of know who you are in today's sense with regards to your family and to running a business, let's kind of talk about how you got to where you are, starting with your childhood. So you're born in May of 1968 in New York to Roseanne Neat and then Bernard Neat is... Yes, my mother and father got married. So my original, my mom's original husband is George Noto. And my mom's maiden name is Esposito. So Roseanne Esposito and, and George Noto got married, I think, in 1964. And then I was born in 1968. My parents were divorced when I was three. And I had older brother, George, who was two years older, a younger brother, Tom, who's three years younger. And my mom raised us. I would say it was a relatively rough time period in our lives. My mom was an incredibly successful woman, but at that point in time when she and my dad got divorced when I was three, she hadn't graduated from high school. In fact, never graduated from high school. She became a beautician and and that was the primary means for our income as a family and, and what we lived off of. And in those first couple of years after my parents got divorced, we were on welfare and food stamps. And I don't think it was until I was in seventh grade where I wasn't a free lunch kid. I didn't actually know what a free lunch kid was. So I got to middle school because the custodians or, or, or women or men that worked in the cafeteria in elementary school kind of took care of my brothers and I and never made it obvious that we didn't have to pay for lunch. And so I never knew that anyone paid for lunch. And I got to middle school in seventh grade and never forget going through the cafeteria line. The woman asked me for $1.50 for lunch. And I was like, for what? She's like, you got to pay for your lunch. And I went home and talked to my mom. And I'm like, do we always have to pay for lunch? And that's when I realized you know, how much We'd benefited from social programs like welfare and other things. My mom was a hard worker and gritty, and she turned her beautician's license into her own business, the Little Terrace Studio, and over time built a relationship with my stepfather, Bernard Nee, and they got married, I think, when I was 12 or 13. I don't remember the exact age. And they built a life for us, and my mom expanded her beauty parlor into tanning beds and workout equipment and other ways to drive even more revenue for the business, and in many ways was 
was really a pioneer in many of the you know chains that you see now in in both spas and and physical fitness and and so forth and we ended up going to a much better school after that public school and that public school happened to benefit from being in the shadow of IBM my father worked for IBM my my real father worked for IBM my stepfather worked for IBM my father-in-law Kristen's father worked for IBM and so IBM in Poughkeepsie New York was attracting some of the best and brightest talent in the world and that caused our school to be populated with some of the smartest and most competitive and athletic children in the world, which elevated us as well. And we all played sports and did well in school and used that to go to you know college and, and leverage that to good education. Do you think that being a child of divorce and kind of being raised just by your mom is something that really shaped who you are as a person today? Yeah, my mom was a very strong leader and my my stepfather, Bernie, really raised us and built the values in us and, and taught us, you know, much about life. But for the first, you know, 10 or so years, it was just my mom and we would see my my real father, George, on weekends, maybe, you know, one or two weekends a, a month on a Saturday. But she was really the person that raised us and taught us hardworking, taught us, you know, how to be athletic and how to be competitive. She ironically coached my little league baseball team. I'll never forget it. I made little the little league team when I was nine. It was for nine to twelve year olds. And the team I was put on was all nine year olds. It was an expansion team and we were we were horrible. And she fired the head coach and took over the team and and coached us for the next two years. So she taught me how to play baseball when I was three and then coached our little league team and you know, she was a very demanding woman, you know, 100% Italian. Her mother died when she was 17 and she raised her younger brother. My grandfather was a war veteran and she was the woman in the house. And that's why she dropped out of high school. It wasn't because she wasn't smart or intelligent or hardworking. She had to raise her younger brother. So she, in some ways, had already been a parent once. And so when it came to us, you know, I like to say she she took no quarter and gave no quarter. Like if you didn't deliver, you heard about it. And not so much in the classroom. Academically, she never really asked us about our grades. It was you know, probably the thing she was the least confident in, writing and math and so forth. But when it came to sports and you know, if we weren't giving it our all, we heard about it. And it wasn't so much like, did you work out or were you working hard? But it was when you're on the field, did you give everything that you had to help your, help your team win? And were you a good sport? And you know, we had chores. We had to you know, clean the bathrooms and dust and vacuum the house and do the dishes. We didn't have a dishwasher. We back then the oil prices were so high we would uh, cut wood during the winter and use that to heat the house with coal and so it was we definitely learned a lot of a lot of really good values from from that upbringing. How do you think that your socioeconomic status as a kid played a role in kind of your value development? Uh, played a huge role. I mean, we were constantly in a situation where you know we knew we were growing up in a different neighborhood. Or you know when my parents got divorced. We moved three or four different times. We lived in an apartment complex. People would probably call it a projects in today's societies, especially out here in Silicon Valley, called Heritage Gardens. It was a very diverse community. It was all apartments. We had two bedrooms. There was four of us, my three brothers and my and my mom and I. And, you know, I remember sharing a bed with my younger brother for a while until we could figure out a way to get bunk beds and three beds in one room. And we had one bathroom. Even when we finally ended up moving into our house that we grew up in when I was a teen, you know, had one bathroom for five people. And, you know, my brothers and I finished the basement. So we would have an extra bedroom, family room and bathroom. So we really, and we, you know, we weren't allowed to have our driver's license until we could pay for our own car, our own gas and our own insurance. So we had to work while playing sports, work at night on weekends when I didn't have practice or a game. So I learned what it was like to work on an hourly wage, a minimum wage. And I learned what it was like to do backbreaking work in a garden center or out in the fields. And 
you know, I knew that I was going to do as well as I could academically to get to a great college and use sports to help me get there and then use that to get a great job. I remember my stepfather, you know, Bernie and I talking when I was 13 or 14 and I had to write a paper for eighth grade career, a career paper. And I wrote a paper that my career would be a, a carpenter. And he, you know, he read it and said, he goes, well, you know, that's an admirable career and you've already learned how to do that. You're building things now and helping other carpenters do things, carrying, you know, the hammer, so to speak, and wood and other things for them. But you're smart and you can do much more than that. You should be an engineer. And he was on the assembly line at IBM. And he explained to me that when the assembly line went down, they all sat there and waited for the engineers to come to fix it. And that I should think about being an engineer. And that's why I made the decision to study engineering. And I made the decision to do that, do that at West Point. But that was all a result of kind of living through you know, tougher economic environment growing up in a diverse community of very diverse, you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds and growing up in a world where there were a lot of blue collar workers and my dad pointing out that I could do more than that if I made made it a goal. For others in that situation or people who don't really have perspective to that situation because they live in a first class world or a middle class world, what would you tell them to take away from an experience that they can't have or from the experience that they do have? I mean, our kids are growing up in an environment where they have so much more than we have. They go to the best private schools and they play every sport they want to play. And they never have to worry about, you know, the clothes they're wearing being made fun of at school because it's not the, you know, the, the right brands or the sneakers they're wearing being too old or the equipment they use for sports not being the best equipment. Like they benefit from all of the economic success that we've had as a family that, you know, I didn't have growing up. But the demands that, you know, we ask of them in terms of those three things are the same things my mom asked of us. And so I think we as parents just have to hold them to those same standards, even though they may have the benefit of better education or the benefit of of more athletic support. You know, they still have to work hard and they still have to do the right thing and they still have to take care of other people. You mentioned that you had a brother, George, and another brother, Thomas. How was your relationship with your siblings? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My brother, George, was two years older than me. He was impacted, I think, and this is my interpretation. I don't know if he'd say the same thing. He was probably more impacted by my parents getting divorced than I was. He was named after my dad. He's a junior. He was two years older than me. He was five when they got divorced. You know, I think he went, he was much more aware of the situation than I was. And these two people that he loved so much decided not to live together. And he probably took on a lot of the burden my mom asked of him to take care of me. So he ended up repeating, I think, second grade because he just hadn't been in school. And I mean, he was super smart. Like, he crushed his SATs without even studying. He's still one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He never really applied himself that well in school and, and a lot of different things. He was super athletic and very smart. And I think he grew up with a lot of anger and it impacted some of the success he would have had otherwise. I benefited from my older brother being just one grade ahead of me and my mom making me go with him everywhere because we couldn't afford babysitters. So if he had baseball practice, even though I wasn't on the team, I was at his practice. If he had football practice, even though I wasn't at the team, I was at his football practice and just playing with the other kids that are around in the park or whatever. And so I grew up, you know, trying to beat my brother in everything, trying to be better than him. And that I think instilled in me a competitiveness that I could have never built on my own. And my goal was always to beat him no matter whatever it was. And he was so talented athletically and academically. I think I, I benefited from, you know, living in his shadow and trying to be better than him. My younger brother, Tom, on the other hand, was three years younger than me. And there's enough distance between us that we weren't as close growing up. But I, my older brother and I were, George, were so competitive. You know, to this day, we have a hard time, I think, spending more than a couple of hours with each other consistently. 
because the competitiveness just comes out in some way. So it's in bite-sized pieces. We talk on the phone now, you know, once a week or every couple of days, and the conversations are kept relatively short. And it, it's we have a tremendous love and affection for each other, but we're definitely we're definitely competitive. And my younger brother Tom was, you know, just young enough that he was far enough distance, and we didn't get close until you know late in when he was in late middle school. And then as adults, my older brother and Tom both worked in the telecom industry, and they helped each other professionally. And they both worked for, I think, MCI, WorldCom for a while, and then eventually Verizon for a long period of time, both in New York. And then they took over sales regions, one in Arizona and, and one out west in LA. And so it was a, I would say we, we've all loved each other tremendously, but we're all very different and have very strong points of view. And I don't think we could all be in the same room for eight hours together, but if anyone needed anything, we'd be there to help each other in a second. And how have those differences, other than competitiveness, helped you grow as an individual? You know, I, I think I learned how to be part of a family where we didn't, there wasn't enough for everybody. You know, just figuring out how to use the bathroom when you're in school, when there's one bathroom and five people, two parents that have to get to work and three kids that have to get to school. You learn to kind of figure it out without creating, it's a team effort is the bottom line. Like everything can't be a fight. Like someone has to go first and someone has to go last. And figuring that out when you have, I mean, this will sound very academic and like we thought about it this way back then, but we didn't. But when you have constraint, constraint is the mother of, of creativity. Constraint drives necessity to, to innovate. And so we found ways to work within an environment where we had limited resources and limited time and we had to work as, a, as brothers to get there. That doesn't mean they both didn't beat the crap out of me when my mom wasn't looking because I was the middle brother or didn't jump in front of me in line in the bathroom. But, you know, we... We had to survive and we knew that if we ever needed each other, we had each other's back and we owed it to each other to be there. Now let's move to the next step in your story, your high school experience. You attended Franklin Roosevelt High School in Hyde Park. Can you just talk about that experience? I mean, you talked about kind of your sports and your how school was for you, but any specific relationships that you feel were really important? Oh yeah. So, I mean, I loved where I grew up and I loved going to Haviland Junior High School and FDR high school. I met a bunch of guys when I was in seventh grade. There, I think there were six elementary schools that all fed into the junior high. The junior high was only seventh and eighth grade. We all met in seventh grade and became lifelong friends all through middle school and then high school. Paul Millard was definitely my closest friend, but Paul Millard, Scott Casey, Pat Duffy, and Frank Cimarelli, the five of us all came from different elementary schools, but all played sports against each other in Little League and knew each other's names and knew that was the other kid we were competing against, whether it was CYO basketball or baseball. And when we got to seventh grade, they had intramurals. And the first intramurals was flag football. And so the five of us, knowing each other, we were really good athletes, were all on the same team. And then for basketball and then floor hockey and then baseball. And we never lost a sports intramural sports event in seventh or eighth grade, even playing against the eighth graders. And we were all competitive and we, when we became fast friends. And so in high school, they were my closest friends. And I would actually say I attribute, and I, we had a larger group of friends than that, but like those, those four people, I mean, they, we taught each other how to be competitive and we taught each other, you know, how to be teammates and to win championships. Frank got drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals as a, as a pitcher. Scott pitched for Quinnipiac baseball and was going to get drafted and hurt his elbow. He, in high school, he was a center fielder. Frank was a shortstop. I was a catcher. Pat was a left fielder. Paul, I played ice hockey with Paul. He, we also all played football. Scott was actually one of my wide receivers when I was quarterback. And Paul also played football. But 
Paul was great in hockey, went on to play in college and set records at St. Bonaventure and then play in Europe. And so amazingly, we all ended up doing something really special beyond high school in sports. I mean, I'd say even more so have had, you know, very successful marriages with families and we've all stayed close and we get back together. We try to get back together every year. And there's a broader group of, of guys beyond that in the class above me and the class below me. I had the benefit of being able to play football with a guy named Pat Manning that went on to row in the Olympics. He was on the crew team, a shot putter that went to the Olympics, CJ Hunter, who was on our football team in our class. The class younger than us had great athletes that played on our, our teams as well. Jeff Pierce played for the Boston Red Sox and John Murphy pitched in college for baseball. And a guy named George Segers walked on Marist College basketball and became their captain. And I mean, these were all my close friends. And every day was a battle in school, not just about sports, but also academically. Of course, I met my wife in seventh grade, Kristen, and her group of friends and my group of friends were really tight and close. And we were best friends all through middle school and high school. And we didn't start dating until we were juniors in college. But that relationship was a direct result of us having been so close growing up together. And what did you take away from this really close group of friends that you had? We were, we were just so fortunate that we grew up in this tremendous time of growth in, in the Hudson Valley and Poughkeepsie and High Park and surrounding areas because of the growth of IBM and, and all the prosperity it brought to our parents' businesses or our parents that worked at, at IBM. And it was just a golden era. Like it was, uh, you know, my parents got divorced when I was three and I couldn't have predicted when I was 13, 14, and 15, that I would have been so fortunate to have such a great group of friends, guys and girls going to a great school, academic public school with great coaches. I mean, my coaches had a huge impact on my life and my friends' lives and people we worked for had a huge impact. So it was just a tremendous opportunity, even though it wasn't the, you know, the, I don't know what the right word is, the notoriety of Silicon Valley, like to me, it felt like every bit of what you'd ever want to grow up, an environment you wanted to grow up in. Do you have any coaches or teachers that taught you any values that you really pushed on in the rest of your life? Yeah, my eighth grade social studies teacher, history teacher, Bill Pachone, turned out to be, by a stroke of a bunch of odd circumstances, I played freshman football as an eighth grader and JV football as a ninth grader. And Coach Pachone was the head coach of the freshman football team, even though he was an eighth grade teacher. And I was in his history class and he made me his starting quarterback and he became a mentor to me all through high school and, and quite frankly, throughout life. He also had five children, ironically enough, and they all played various different sports. So he taught me so much more than football, but he taught me how to, how to play the game as a quarterback. Our high school varsity coach, Ted Peterson, was actually the guy that got me to play football after I thought I was never going to play again in eighth grade. I'd mentioned my older brother played sports and my mom wouldn't leave us at home with a babysitter. So he was, George was in ninth grade, I was in eighth grade. Uh, our parents said we only could play two sports, so I chose basketball at that point. I'd already been playing football, but because we were older, we couldn't keep playing as many sports. So I had to pick two, so I picked basketball and baseball because all my friends played basketball. So I'd go to summer practice double sessions with my older brother, George, for football, and I'd play basketball the whole day at the basketball court at the high school. And the head football coach, Ted Peterson, said, why are you not playing football? And I explained to him that I could only play two sports. And he said, well, you're here, and your brother's playing, so why don't you just play? And so I got equipment the next day as an eighth grader and started playing with the JV and varsity team as an eighth grader as a quarterback, which led to me playing for Coach Platoon. Well, Coach Peterson would drive me home from weightlifting every day. My mom worked. She couldn't bring me home from weightlifting, so I'd have to take the school bus home. But I needed to lift weights for sports, and Coach Peterson would drive me a half hour home every day and go out of his way, and we talked the whole way home, and he had a huge impact on my life. And our coach, who's passed away, Dwayne Davis, for baseball, 
he taught me humility. He didn't, I, I played varsity baseball, supposed to play baseball in college. Coach Davis didn't let me play as a junior. I was on the team, but I didn't start because I played hockey and our hockey team won the championship and it went into the beginning of baseball season. So I showed up to baseball late and he literally sat me on the bench the whole season to see if I could handle it. And then by the end of the year, you know, gave me a chance and, you know, I capitalized on it, but we often talked about how he was testing me the whole year. He didn't know who I was as a person. He was judging me based on my older brother and his lack of discipline and behavior and being a team player. And so while I thought I was being wronged and ultimately proved that I should have been on the field, I had to eat my humble pie and cheer the team on throughout the whole season. So every one of my coaches had an impact, starting with my mom. And you said that your football coach taught you things other than just to love the game of football and love athletics. Do you have any other things specifically that he taught you? Yeah. So Coach Pachone, when I was a junior, was the offensive coordinator. He moved out from the freshman team. Coach Peterson retired that year and they had to name a new head coach. And I thought it was going to be Coach Pachone for my senior year. And he didn't get the job. And he went to another school to be the head coach there, Spack and Kill High School. And so I had a really, really rough senior year. Our football team went one and eight and I was the quarterback, which means I wasn't very good. And I would talk to Coach Pachone every couple of days and just ask him for advice in dealing with the adversity that we were going through as a team. And more significantly, the coach that we had, I didn't have a great amount of respect for. He really got the job because of a bunch of political reasons. He wasn't that qualified to be a head coach. Our team suffered because of his lack of leadership and knowledge. And my coach really, you know, Coach Pachone taught me the patience of how to deal with that situation and and how to focus on selfless things and focus on trying to make the team better, not worrying about my individual performance, and also really trying to communicate better with the coach that we had and being loyal to him because I wanted to be anything but but loyal at that point in time because I just thought it was wrong as he'd be in the coach. And then after, you know, after high school, I went to West Point. He loved West Point. He'd come to our games and as I started to raise our children, our oldest daughter, Marissa, uh, wasn't that into sports. And she was like four or five years old. And he said, Anthony, just buy every piece of sports equipment you can. And just on Saturday morning, go in the backyard. And even if she only plays for five minutes with everything, maybe she'll do five or 10 things. And at some point she'll like something. So literally we bought tennis rackets and basketballs and softballs and wiffle ball bats and lacrosse sticks. And, and sure enough, along the way, she fell in love with lacrosse. With regards to your whole high school experience, do you have any regrets or changes you would make? You know, we we had a core group of friends and and there was outer rings of that group of friends. And, you know, if I look back on that time period, I would have loved to have spend, you know, more time with more people. I mean, I try to encourage our kids to do that as well. Like I was really close with the, the five people I mentioned as my closest friends and outer rings of that. But there was probably a group of 40 kids in our class that, I, you know, I I felt like were really, you know, people that I'd love to spend time with, just not enough time in the day to do it. But, you know, 30 years, looking back 30 years later, I wish, you know, I would have been able to spend more time with more people. I also think I, I would have liked to have uh, challenged myself academically in different areas outside of math and science. I was in all AP courses and, you know, it would have been uh, interesting to spend more time on some of the more technical things back in high school. And if you could give a high schooler one or two pieces of advice right now, what would you tell them? You know, I'd say, you know, high school is about learning how to learn and you just don't know what you don't know. And so keep your mind open, challenge yourself, take the classes that you wouldn't otherwise take. Make sure that you're putting into, you know, each of your your different areas of interest could be academics, could be theater, could be arts, could be sports. Make sure you're setting specific goals and you're challenging yourself to get there because I think there's three parts to learning. One is 
not knowing something and then challenging yourself to learn it. And during that challenging part, there has to be adversity. There has to be confusion. There has to be a period of resilience and then breaking through that resilience and breaking, being persistent. And that becomes learning. And I can remember when I was learning algebra in eighth grade, going home to my mom and saying, I don't understand why there are letters with numbers in these equations. And my mom saying, I don't even know what algebra is. And just literally every night trying to figure out what the hell the letters were. And then one day in the spring, literally, you know, three quarters of the way through the class, you know, I've been struggling every night to try to do my math homework, not knowing how to do it, just memorizing it. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, the A is any number and B is any number other than what A is. And that struggle is what's key to learning. And so challenge yourself so that you have struggle because if you don't struggle, you won't learn. Yeah, definitely. Now to the next part of your life, your college experience, you attended the military academy at West Point. There you were an all-star linebacker, earned multiple awards, and then you graduated as the highest ranking mechanical engineer in your class. Can you talk about why you chose West Point? Yeah, the funny thing about West Point is my stepfather, Bernie, woke me up on a Saturday. I was in, it was between eighth grade and ninth grade. And my older brother was trying out for this sport called team handball. It's an Olympic sport, European sport, not like handball in the US. And so he said, hey, we're going to West Point today. I want you to come with me. And I'm like, I, I don't want to go to West Point. What, what do I need to be there? And, and he made me get in the car. It was about an hour from our house. Sure enough, my brother's trying out for the sport. I'm a teenager. I'm wearing basketball shorts, basketball sneakers, and a t-shirt because that's what you wore when you're in eighth grade. And the coach for the team Empire State Games team handball team uh, came over and said, hey, are you going to try out? And I said, no, I'm only in eighth grade. And he said, well, we need some extra people. Why don't you play with us? And I ended up making the team. And the practices all summer long were at West Point. And the games, the Empire State Games were in August. So I spent every day or every other day during that summer with West Point cadets. And I basically became enamored with them. I mean, they were in great shape. They were smart. They were hardworking. They're incredibly articulate. They were like the perfect role model. I'm like, I want to be like those guys. And so I started just doing my homework on West Point. And I quickly realized, yeah, it was about going into the army, which I really didn't have any interest in. But what I had a huge interest in was changing my life and figuring out how to take myself where I was economically um, to a different level. And I saw West Point as an opportunity to get an education, but also to become a leader. Some of the other choices I had in high school, driven by being recruited for football and baseball, were to go to Ivy League schools. And I just felt like West Point was going to give me more than a great education. It was also going to give me an education and leadership. And so when people asked me down the road what I was trained to do in college, I could say I was taught to be a leader and here's why. And and so that was ultimately the driving force behind why I went there. Can you explain why West Point made you into a leader and what it taught you about being a leader? Yeah. The, I mean, the mission of the academy at that time was to create leaders of character for the nation. And so it, you definitely learn all the academic studies that you choose a major in, but it's also a leadership school. And they teach you how to be a leader. The organization is run by the cadets. There are platoons and platoon leaders and platoon sergeants and company commanders and battalion commanders. There are lessons on leadership. There are classes on leadership you're required to take. Then in the summers, you have leadership training. And so they're teaching you how to be an officer in the army, which by definition is a leader of other men and women. And so it's that tool, dual pronged education. It's actually three pieces, military, athletic, and academic. And what did they tell you about being a leader that you really carried on to the next part of your life? I mean, so many, so many things. I mean, one of the, the most important things is that to lead by example, never ask your your unit to do what you're not willing to do yourself. And you got to set the example and lead by example. But also sometimes leading is following. 
being in front isn't what leadership always is. Sometimes there are other people that are more capable in your team or your unit or your organization than you are. And giving them the resources and the support to be the leader and being a great follower is also leadership. Being ethically and morally above board. Um, there's a part of the cadet prayer that is, you know, I should choose the harder right over the easier wrong. That's a good part of leadership. I think being a team player and being selfless are other elements of, of leadership that we're taught. Also candor and ensuring your people are taken care of. As we're saying in the army, it says take care of your people and they'll take care of you. And did you have any mentors in this experience who taught you new values or helped you learn these lessons? Yeah, I think the whole academy experience is about mentorship and it's about teaching the teacher. So I learned from my classmates. I learned from people older than me. I learned a ton from our coaches. Our, our football coach, Jim Young, was a teacher himself. Even though he was our football coach, he taught us about Sun Tzu and the art of war. Ironically, West Point, for war strategy, taught us about Clausewitz and his strategy about wars, which is about center of gravity, where Sun Tzu had a completely different approach. And Coach Young taught us about Sun Tzu and how it applied to not just football, but to life. He also taught us the concept of critical success factors. I've read the book Moneyball, and in the book Moneyball, they talk about the fact that on-base percentage is the critical success factor. And as I was reading the book, I was like, Coach Young knew Moneyball before it was a thing. Like he knew exactly what we needed to do in a football game. What were the five things we needed to do to win? And they weren't about football. They were about strategy and tactics and leadership and about changes in momentum and changes in, in different circumstances. So um, I learned from the officers, I learned from my classmates, and I learned from our coaches. And how did this particular coach who taught you Sun Tzu and the strategic defense, like how did he specifically teach you those things or what? Did, how do you apply them to your life? At the beginning of every season, he would sit down and, and establish the goals for the year and then the critical success factors and the priorities, which is what we do as a company, ironically enough, exact same thing. Each week during the season, he would put cards on our chair. There's about 100 of us. And you walk in, there'd be an index card. And typed in that card would be a phrase. All different types of things. Know thyself and not the enemy when 50% of the battles. Know the enemy and not thyself when 50% of the battles. Know the enemy and thyself when 100% of the battles. Water is like war. Without momentum, you cannot move boulders. And just different things like that. Death ground was a concept that he taught us, uh, which basically means when your back's against the wall and there's overwhelming odds against you. You have two choices. You can jump over the cliff and have certain death, or you can stand against all the odds, dig in and grip hands and fight together as a team and try to overcome those odds. And he would use battles to articulate that. We were playing Alabama in the Sun Bowl, and they were huge favorites, and they were supposed to kill us. In fact, I think the USA Today predicted that they would need dental records after the game to be able to identify us because we were going to compete so bad. He said, you know what? Today's the anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. And the Germans had the Americans surrounded in the Battle of the Bulge. And the Major was asked to surrender and save their lives. And he basically told them to F off. And so that's our message to Alabama today, F off. So he always found a way to work in military as well as life. And after military, you went to Army Ranger School. Why did you take that next step getting even further into the military? As part of going to West Point, you have to serve five years. You get to go to West Point for free and obligation you incur is five years in an active duty military. And so uh, I had to serve my time in the Army. Our Ranger School was happenstance. I happened to tear the ACLs in both of my knees as a junior and played the next two years without ACLs. So I had surgery my senior year on both knees and I ended up having to stay on as a graduate assistant football coach to rehab my knees. And when I went to my unit, I wanted to get back in shape. And so I joined a Ranger preparatory program and did well in it and ended up getting a ranger slot and 
realized I couldn't turn it down and I had to go. And so I ended up going to ranger school. You went to a ranger prep program to get back in shape, isn't it? Usually you're in the greatest shape of your life. So you go to the ranger prep. Yeah, it, I was, uh, I hadn't run in a year. I was at my playing weight again. And the first couple of weeks of the ranger program were not easy. I did not go into my best shape of my life. By the time I got to ranger school, I was in the best shape of my life though. And how did you deal with that hardship? Not having, not being prepared to go to that program. Uh, you know, it's just, I think sports prepared me for it. And I also, it wasn't a fell out situation. It was, I was using it as a way to motivate myself. And so it got me up early in the morning every day and got me to work out more than I would have done on my own. And so it was actually a, in many ways, a mechanism to get me back mentally and physically where I needed to be. And then in ranger school, obviously this is one of the most hard athletic experiences or physical experiences that you can go through just being in this program. What did you learn? You know, ranger school is a school about leadership and that's not often understood by people. And so what they do to you in ranger school is they're trying to teach you combat leadership and rangers have a series of missions, ambushes, reconnaissance, hostage and rescue, in addition to a bunch of other things. Most of the people that are in ranger school are incredibly motivated and they're incredibly successful. And so what they do is they kind of get you to the point where you're about to break by not allowing you to eat and not allowing you to sleep. And so you can go three or four days without eating or sleeping. And at that point, if you're a soldier in a unit and someone's trying to lead you, it's hard to lead someone that hasn't eaten or slept for four days. And so you have to learn how to motivate people that are unmotivated in a war type situation. And they basically rotate you through different leadership positions. And so you also learn how to follow because at some point you're going to have to lead. So basically, you get assigned patrol missions where you're the leader. You have to do the preparation with the unit. Then you have to execute that mission. And then you got to do the recovery afterwards. And you're evaluated on each one of those missions. And they take place at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's incredibly dark out. The visibility is very low. People, The 39 people in your platoon are incredibly tired and haven't eaten. They're not very motivated. But you have to show the leadership to bring them to the point of where they can accomplish the mission. And along the way, you run into enemy and unexpected casualties and unexpected issues with logistics and supply and all the and communication, all the other things that happen in war and how you deal with that uncertainty and react to it is a big part of whether you graduate. And what do you say? How do you deal with it? You're taught these different leadership skills and it's about, again, setting a plan, making sure that plan is agreed to and disseminated through the, communicated through the entire org, making sure the right people are given the right responsibilities and they understand that plan and there's alternatives to that plan in case things go wrong, I contingency plans and making sure there's enough resources and there's, you know, a, an ability to communicate throughout the operation. So when things go wrong, because they absolutely will, how do you adapt to plan B, C, or D? And how do you deal with that uncertainty that you can't expect? And in this program, did you learn any different leadership skills than they had taught you before? Or was it just reinforcing those same ideas? I learned what it was like to be a soldier that was being asked to do things that you didn't believe in from a leader. There would be times when we would have a leader in charge where you knew that leader wasn't going to help, wasn't going to get us to accomplish the mission because they weren't a great leader. And so how do you work as hard as you can in that environment knowing you are definitely going to fail? And if you don't work as hard as you can, then there's no chance that you can succeed as a unit. And so you have to convince yourself to motivate yourself to actually put it all on the line knowing the odds of success are pretty low because that leader is going to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. And that's hard to do, especially when you haven't eaten or slept for a couple of days. It's very easy when leader X that you know is not a great leader gets put in charge and you haven't slept for three or four days to just sleep out on the point. And then he fouls and you foul because you get infiltrated by the enemy. 
or not being willing to carry the ammunition and leaving it behind or just doing something that jeopardized the mission for your own well-being. And so you learn how to be selfless and to do it in a way where you know there's no reason to believe you're going to be successful, but you have to convince yourself to put it all on the line anyway. And you personally, how do you motivate yourself in the times like that? I think it's just going back to those three things that my mom taught me, which is work as hard as you can and do the right thing and take care of other people. And when you start straying from that, reminding yourself that no one's going to be successful if you don't commit yourself to those three things. And it's sort of like when you're on a run with people and the pace is seven minutes and you need to go six miles. If you're not staying at seven minutes and no one can continue unless you stay with the group, you're causing everyone else to fail. So you just have to find a way to pull your weight. Now, after going to Ranger School, you were a communications officer in the infantry division. This is a peculiar question in a way because I just finished reading a book called Sea Stories by General McRaven. And in that story, he he talks about his experiences in the military being the guy who is in charge of getting Saddam Hussein and capturing Osama bin Laden. But he also talks about being in a SEAL school and like seven lessons that he learned from that. So do you have any specific stories of operations that you were involved with or even in your ranger school time, any training sessions that kind of sparked something new in your brain? I don't know that I have anything that I could share. I got deployed to a couple different places. I was fortunate that when my time in the army, there wasn't any active wartime situations. It was post the first Gulf War. I spent a couple months in Egypt for different operations. I did go to Kuwait for a very short period of time. I don't know that there's anything that I could share specifically. I would just say every time I went someplace in the army, I learned something new about myself, new about my unit, and a new way to screw things up and a new way to find a way to dig your head out of your ass. So after the military, you continued your education by going to University of Chicago and getting an MBA at Wharton. Why did you make the decision to keep going, go back to school? Yeah. So I, um, President Clinton um, had been elected president. He was downsized in the army. I was a communications officer and a ranger officer, which was a unique specialty. I was supposed to get go on to another army school and I'd made the decision to get out of the army. We just had our first daughter. We left the army, went to Kraft Foods as a brand manager. I went into a class, system brand manager class that was largely all MBA graduates except for a couple people from the military, myself, another guy named Greg Johnson, and a couple other people had gone to military academy and they recruited us as part of those classes, even though we didn't have MBAs. So while I was at Kraft, I just felt like I needed to get an MBA to be at the same level of understanding of the operations and marketing as everyone else. So my first location with Kraft was in Chicago, and that's why I went to the University of Chicago at night business school. And about three quarters of the way through that, I got an opportunity to get transferred to New York. And I didn't want to go back to Chicago on weekends to finish the program. And so I went to Wharton through the executive MBA program on weekends, which turned out to be a great, great decision and a great experience. I think there's two benefits to it. One, you learn the academic reasons for all the decisions you're making as a business person. And then two, the network that you build will last a lifetime. I'm close with all the people that were in my study group and um, we've crossed paths in many different ways over time. Our chief accounting officer at, at Twitter was one of the people in my study group. And I switched to Wall Street because the, my study group helped me understand what the career would be like different than Kraft Foods. Um, so it was a great experience and it expanded my knowledge of business, but more importantly, created some lifelong friends. And other than the friends that you built, any other mentors or relationships that you kind of had from that experience? 
Um, business school was definitely a really impactful experience for me. Uh, guys like Dan Toscano and and Ed Wiggers and Mike Demko and Robert Caden really exposed me a different part of the world outside of the Army and craft and gave me a better understanding of the career opportunities I'd have in life. And so they definitely were great mentors to me during that time and since then. And then after that, you had this amazing professional career where you started working at uh, Goldman and you became a top analyst there. And then you eventually became a partner in 2004. What did you learn from Goldman? One of the things about Goldman that I think is incredibly powerful while I was there and I've been gone for a number of years is the culture. It's the first time I truly understood what a great culture was. There was a book that came out when I was interviewing called The Culture of Success. Um, and it was about Goldman. And so I think I learned a lot there. I mean, I developed some lifelong friends. I learned a ton about business, about strategy. I'm here in Silicon Valley because of the companies I covered were internet companies and technology companies as an analyst and as a banker. But I think the most powerful thing I learned there was just what a great, great culture can do for the success of a company. I joined when there was 10,000 people. I left when there's 35,000. I spent, I had two stints there from 99 through beginning of 08 and then 2010 to 2000 through 2014. And what is a great culture? What is Goldman going to help you think that is? You know, at Goldman, it was, you know, there are business principles that established what that culture was. But I would, I would say the thing there that was most impactful was that everyone, it was such a team environment. It was Wall Street's commonly known as like a, very much a star system. And that was not the culture of Goldman. Goldman is very much a team culture and no one person was more important than the company and no one person was more important than the team. And I really appreciated that type of culture and environment. Did the business values there that you mentioned translate into life values and social values or was it really just guiding the company? No, it definitely translated into social values and life values. You know, I think Hank Paulson really set the standard for what he expected of partners and when I partnered in 2000 and 2004, I remember him saying something along the lines, you're all in this room because there's one thing you have in common. I think there's a hundred of us. It's that you all run after problems. And it was the first time I'd heard it articulated that way. And if I thought about my career, I was always that type of person. When I saw something wrong, I ran towards it to fix it, not ran away from it. It's one of our core values here. It's one of the things I've taken along the way. And I talk to people about when they say, you know, what's the most important thing I can do for a company? And there are always things that are going to fall between the cracks, but if you're the type of leader that runs after those things so they don't fall between the cracks, you'll definitely make the company better than it otherwise would be. And that's something I learned from Hank. After Goldman, you became the CFO at Twitter, but you had kind of a strange transition where you started working at, or where you were appointed to work at Code Management, but then in the same year, two months after, you switched to Twitter. Why did you make that transition? We announced that I was leaving Goldman to go to Co2 Capital. And when I called the Twitter CEO, Dick Costa, to let him know I was leaving Goldman to go to Co2, he's like, Anthony, we've been talking every day for two weeks about the company and the leadership changes we need to make. And I thought it was obvious that you would have known that I wanted to hire you as the CFO. I said, Dick, I had no idea. Like, it's too late. Like, I would have definitely taken the job, but it's way too late. So over the course, I had to take time off. I had to take two months off before I could go to Co2. So this was May. My start date at Kotu was July. And during that time, you know, Dick and I continued to spend time together. I was helping him make a lot of tough decisions. Other board members, I was their banker, so I was close with them. And just along the way, I just realized it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so I called the team at Kotu, Philippe Lafont, and told him, you know, the decision I was making. And, you know, to his credit, he really understood that it was once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And we've remained good friends since then. And and a strong professional relationship. So 
it was a tough decision and not one that I would have made very easily. And it was really hard. And when I always wonder if, if it was the right thing to do, but it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And what made you think that Twitter was the right decision? I just thought it was a company, and it still is a company that was unprecedented in nature. It has the best content in the world, and it doesn't pay anything for the content. It's the only company that has NFL content and Wall Street Journal content and Washington Post and Disney content and you name political content. It's all on there for free. And the reason why it's on there for free is they have this massive distribution. And so it's the way for people to see what's happening in the world, and they pay nothing for the content. And I've never seen any company in the world like that. And so it was obviously leveraging mobile distribution and it was a global business and it impacted the world in a unique way. So I saw it as the best combination of media and technology company I'd ever seen. So it was really aligned with your your values of kind of spreading worldview and getting in knowledge and working the hardest to kind of improve other people. And that's why you would- It was a very mission-driven company, very impactful. And it was in a state where it needed the transition to be able to capture even more of that opportunity. And I thought I could play a key role in that. After Twitter, you came to work here at SoFi. We already talked a little bit about that. Is there anything else important from that, from your experience at SoFi or in your professional career that I kind of missed that you think we should discuss? I think the most important thing I'd say about where I am now in my life is that I don't know exactly how I ended up here other than maybe it was a guiding hand from someone from above. I never would have thought I would work for a consumer finance company. And when the idea was first presented to me, I didn't really see why it would be a great fit for me. But as I dug into the problem that SoFi is solving and helping people reach this point where they have enough money to do what they want and how underserved, very successful people are that are making more than $100,000 a year and they can't buy the house they want or have the number of kids they want or the career they want, I've become incredibly passionate about it. It will be my life's work. And I, I think in many ways satisfies my desire to give back when I reflect back on, you know, when my parents got divorced and the challenges that my mom fought through to help us get to a great uh, outcome. And so I now have the chance to do that on a global basis for so many other people. And I couldn't be happier in having made the decision and the passion I have for helping people the way people helped my mom and us is, is really significant and why I'm here. Now, just right before we close, kind of let's just zoom out a little bit and are there any major failures in your life that we didn't really talk about that you feel like have kind of transformed your life? One major one was I didn't get into West Point when I applied the first time. Ironically, I applied to 15 different colleges, which is probably a record. Um, I got into every college I applied to except for one, which was West Point. And it, I, got a, I was qualified academically and I was qualified uh, physically and athletically, uh, but you need a nomination from a congressman or a senator to go to West Point congressional nomination or senatorial nomination. My congressman, Hamilton Fish, had no vacancies. He couldn't nominate anyone that year. And while I was being recruited for football, the football coach and baseball coach said, we can send you to West Point's prep school for a year and you can come in that way since you don't have a nomination or we can try to get you one through the late May or early June because people typically will accept and then at the last minute decide not to come and it always frees up something. So if you're willing to wait, you could do that or you can go to prep school. And my second choice was go to Cornell when I called the Cornell coach, Coach Dedman, I remember his name like it was yesterday, and, and said, this is what's going on. He already knew West Point was my first choice. Cornell was second. He said, Anthony, you should go to West Point's prep school, and you can learn about what it's like to be at the academy. It's very similar. And if you hate it, come here. And if you love it, like then you made the right decision. And going to West Point's prep school was uh, one of the best decisions I made, and it was a direct result of failing to get into West Point. Did you have any 
kind of self-doubt or confidence issues after you failed to get in the first time? I think I had self-doubt and confidence issues my entire childhood and through high school. And pretty much probably halfway through, I was West Point. You know, we, we were going to school with kids that were doing really well economically. Their families were doing really well. And we lived in a different part of town and different type of house and had different economic means. And so I think there was a general insecurity throughout middle school and high school, whether I was good enough or not, whether I fit in, not because I wasn't smart or athletic or just because I came from a different walk of life than everyone else. And so, you know, you always have this imposter syndrome that you worry about. Like, am I getting good grades because it's easy? And when I get out in the real world, it will be, I won't be as smart or I got lucky or the athletes here aren't as good why I won't be able to compete in college. And it wasn't until I was, I would say, you know, prep school definitely reinforced the potential that I had academically and athletically and from a leadership standpoint. About halfway through West Point, I, I definitely started to gain confidence of what was possible. I never truly, truly believed I was going to be able to start and play college sports until, you know, halfway through my, my uh, sophomore year. And before that point that you kind of really recognized your confidence and your capability, how did you deal with that insecurity? I just worked harder. <laughs> I mean, I think in many ways, kids today have tremendous anxiety because of social media and the awareness they have of everything that's going on around them. I think back then I had anxiety, but I used it to drive me. Got me out of the bed in the morning to work out, to you know, study later at night or whatever. It just, I think when you're unsure and there's a thin edge between anxiety that causes mental problems and anxiety that drives and motivates you. And I, I think I was always on the right side of that edge and benefited from that anxiety and that uncertainty. And like I said, my mom always said, if you don't feel good about what you're doing, work harder. Well, Anthony, thank you for making it today. Given the time, you've achieved an immense amount in your life, something that should inspire many. Before we go, are there any closing remarks you'd like to make? Any advice you want to give just to the world? Yeah, I, I would just say anyone that's achieved anything, it's, it's happened because of great people around them and the support system they have and the family they have. And I'm definitely someone that's been very, I think I've benefited tremendously and I'm really thankful for the support systems I've had, both from my family to coaches, to teachers and military officers and, and all the people along the way and anything that I've accomplished because of those great people. Again, Anthony, thank you for your time. Thank you. On the next episode of The One Hour Intern, I learned from New York Times reporter and author, Kate Kelly. What do you think? This is just like, this is a party. This is a joke. You guys need to pull harder. Every stroke counts. Get in the zone. Don't be lazy. Don't blow it off. Like every single stroke counts. And, you know, just showing up every day, even if you're tired, even if you don't feel like it. Some of my best sprint times came on a day where I showed up and was feeling terrible. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks.